thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So before uh, we pick up uh, chapter 25 today, I wanted to uh, point something out to you. Father uh, gave us the Sunday pictures of the first uh, Friday devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Uh, do any do you all know about the first Friday devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus? Let me read to you the promises. So Jesus gave the following promises to Saint Margaret Mary for souls devoted to his most sacred heart. I will give them all the graces necessary in their state of life. I will establish peace in their homes. I will comfort them in their afflictions. I will be their secure refuge in life and above all in death. So and, uh, I will bestow abundant blessings on all their undertakings. Sinners shall find in my heart the source and infinite ocean of mercy. Tepid souls shall become fervent. Fervent souls shall quickly mount to high perfection I will bless every place where a picture of my heart shall be exposed and honored. I will give to priests the gift of touching the most hardened hearts. Those who shall promote this devotion shall have their names written in my heart, never to be blotted out. I promise you in the excessive mercy of my heart that my all-powerful love will grant to all those who receive Holy Communion on the first Friday for nine consecutive months the grace of final repentance. They shall not die in my disgrace, nor without receiving the sacraments. My divine heart shall be their safe refuge in that last moment. So that's what the devotion is about. If you don't know about it, uh, Father can give you those pictures. It's a beautiful devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. It's uh, really powerful. I thought I'd share that with you. All right, having said that, uh, we're going to now um, try and go through chapter 25. I have 20 pages of notes on this chapter. It's extremely rich. Let's see how well we fare tonight. So if you have scriptures with you, your scripture with you, please uh, follow with me in chapter 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Epha, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Eldea. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days... Of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham 
breathed his last and died in good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his, son, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of uh, Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Laharoi. These are the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the son of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbil, Mipsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Haddad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedima. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his kindred. They dwelt from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his people. These are the descendants of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took to wife Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why do I live? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples. Born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came forth, red, all his body like a hairy mantle, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards his brother came forth, <clears throat> and his hand had taken hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was sixty years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was boiling pottage, Esau came in, front, in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red pottage, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, I am about to die of what you use as a birthright to me. Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Following Isaac's marriage, the text reports nothing more of the activities of Abraham, even though the chronological system of Genesis informs us that he lived for another 35 years. His death and burial are now recorded, preceded and followed by a genealogical list of his descendants. So essentially, the whole Abrahamic cycle is sandwiched between genealogies. The genealogy that ran all the way through to Noah and the genealogy that springs forth from him. And genealogies are obviously very important. Um, for instance, you know that the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke both contain, gene contain genealogies. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew starts with a genealogy. 
and there are very fundamental reasons why it's important. It's essentially a way to track that the covenant of God was going to be fulfilled. Because if God said, I am going to bless the nations through your descendants, well, you better have descendants. And if you don't have descendants, then there is a problem. So in particular, in the Gospel of Matthew, why it's supremely important that he started with the genealogy is because when you look at the three sets of 14, the, first two, the, middle of this, the, the end of the first set <clears throat> ends with one king, one Judean king, and that king sees all his children being killed. Now the prophecy is that the Messiah will come through the line of Judah. Well, if all the kings are dead, and his children are dead, how is the prophecy fulfilled? So what's astounding for the readers of Matthew is that he picks up that genealogy and continues it. It's after the exile. There's a whole list of names in the third set in, in the Gospel of St. Matthew which are not listed anywhere else in Scripture. You will not find them. So obviously Matthew had, must have had some source to find out where the, those names are coming from and they trickled down all the way to Joseph. So Joseph is in the royal line, direct royal line all the way through of the kings of Judah. Right? That's why the, geneal the genealogy is so important. So in this case, we see this, this uh, framework of genealogies ensuring that that covenant that was given to Adam first, that went all the way down to Noah, was <clears throat> renewed with Noah, and continued all the way down to Abraham, and now moves forward, is the assurance that we have that that covenant that God said will be fulfilled is indeed being fulfilled throughout the ages. And the closing section will show how God's promises to the patriarch were realized. And it's dependent on and presupposes the knowledge of those earlier promises. Right? So the reason, again, every time you see genealogy, you always think the covenant. The covenant, the covenant, the covenant. This is why those genealogies are given. Right? They're not empty lists of names. So there are a number of promises that God gave to Abraham specifically. God promised that the patriarch would be exceedingly numerous the father of a multitude of nations, exceedingly fertile. Well, the genealogical lists specify how this was brought about. So these names that you've heard cover effectively, essentially are going to cover all the, all the Israelites, right, and then all the Arabs, and those who came before them. Right? So he was indeed exceedingly numerous. Abraham has been, had been assured, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried at a ripe old age. Here it is affirmed that he died at a good, ripe, uh, ripe age, old and contended, and then he was gathered to his kin. He died at 175 years old. Right? The third promise was, God had declared that Isaac alone was to be the true heir of the covenant. Here, Isaac becomes the sole beneficiary of his father's estate. Right? So, there again, that promise that God made is being kept. And the fourth is that previously Hagar had been promised that God would greatly increase her offspring, that her son Ishmael would be made fertile and exceedingly numerous, the father of twelve chieftains, a great nation. Here the twelve chieftains are listed by name. So it's a confirmation. Everything God said happened. And uh, the other thing that's really important is, is that... Um, yeah, well, this is what I told you, right? That God essentially is going to bring about whatever He promises. That's, what, what, that's the reason why this text is sandwiched between these genealogies. 
And aside from that, these genealogical lists bear intrinsic interest for a historian. Uh, why? Well, number one, there are two groupings of nomadic tribes or peoples mostly identifiable as Arabs. Okay, so, and I'll, I'll try and cover some of that. I have a lot of details on this, but in the interest of time, I may not be able to cover all of it. Both are set to trace their origins back to the patriarch, the one through a certain Keturah, the other through Ishmael, Abraham's son by Hagar. Right? And Keturah has six sons, Ishmael 12. And many of the names here listed are known to us from cuneiform sources as those of peoples. So when you read the Assyrians, you read, for instance, the archives of Mari and other extra-biblical sources, you will see the same name appear. So those names were known to us from other sources. Most of them. Some of them are, some of them are unknown. And that essentially re represents a confederation of tribes that once enjoyed kinship, trade, or political ties with the early Israelites. And the reason is probably because there were family ties. Now, the antiquity of some of these lists is apparent from a number of features. The term Arab is not used, nor is there a personality of that name who is regarded as the eponym or name-giving ancestor. An eponym is the one who gives the name to the whole tribe. Right? So Isaac would be an eponym. So is Jacob. Right? Um, of the ancestors of the Arabs. So the word Arab is not used. Right? The reason is that the designation Arab does not appear in written sources before the 9th century before B.C. So when you look at documents preceding the 9th century B.C., you will not find the word Arab. It doesn't exist. When it is first used in both royal Assyrian inscriptions and in biblical literature. The omission of the name Arab from our list would indicate that these derive from before the period when it came into vogue. The other reason is the inclusion of Midianites provide further evidence of antiquity. The Midianites... Um, you need to realize that the Midianites were very hostile to Israel during the wandering when they left Egypt. And they were also, they had a fertility cult which proved to be a provocative and corrupting influence on Israel. So by the time they leave Egypt, the Midianites are enemies. There was a bloody clash with Israel and in the time of the judges, so once Israel entered the, the, uh, the promised land, Joshua ruled over them, and after Joshua, before the kings, came the judges. And during the judges, there were bloody clashes with the, with the Midianites. And the, the, the kingdom of Midian exerted hegemony over the Israelites, who fought a war of liberation under Gideon, who was a judge, to rid themselves of the, of the hated oppressor. And that victory was long remembered in Israel. And given such a history of enmity between the two peoples, it is hardly likely that the narrator would have invented a record of kinship unless it rested on solid fact. So essentially it's like taking two, um, two countries who hate each other for a long time and saying they're brothers. Well, you won't do that unless there was a reason for you to do it. And that's another really important thing about the Bible as a historical record. Right? The, Bible, the Bible is a historical record provided that you read it the right way and you understand the context in which it was written. Uh, this is important, why? Because when Moses flew from Pharaoh, right, who did he marry? He married the daughter of the Midianite priest. Right? So, um, and the, the reason presumably is because there is amicable relationship at that time between Israel and Midian given on account of their relationship into Abraham. Uh, there are additional uh, testimony to
to the early source of this text, which is afforded by the Ishmaelite genealogy. When you look at the genealogy of Ishmael, a number of things are really interesting. Um, there is no biblical allusion to the Ishmaelites after the time of David. So the Ishmaelites are mentioned all the way until the time of David, and after that, it sort of disintegrated and disappeared into history and was absorbed into was what became known as the Arabs. Right? And so when we read it, when we say the Arabs are the son of Abraham, are the children of Abraham, the Arabs are the children of Abraham, right? Through Ishmael. So that account is has historical, it, historical facts behind it, isn't made up. And it also dovetails with the fact that no such ethnic entity, Ishmaelites, is mentioned in several royal Assyrian inscriptions that deal with Arab tribes. So therefore, this list must come before the 10th century BC, which is the the date of the oldest Assyrian manuscript we have. And finally, the present genealogy places the Ketorites in the second position, which, what I read to you earlier in the list from Ishmael, you see that um, you have um, the firstborn is Nebaioth and then Kedar. He's, he's in the second position, um, which which is an earlier state of affairs because under the Assyrians' documents of the 8th and 7th centuries, and in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7, the Ketorites are the leading North Arabian tribe. So that has changed. Okay, so uh, it's important to realize that, although perhaps for this audience it may not be as important or interesting, but you need to realize that there is a battle being waged out there on the antiquity of those texts, where there are some theologians who would state that the text is actually written after they came back from exile. And therefore, since they were written after they came back from exile, the Pentateuch, there is a separation between the events and what was written. Right? And here, what the, uh, this analysis is trying to show is that there is something within the text that suggests that this is no, this is really a um, text that was written prior to these... Um, um, these thoughts have come in place. Because if it was written after the, they came back from Babylon, the narrator would have inserted, that is, the Arabs, to explain to their audience who these names were, as they have done other, in other places. But here they don't. There's no such mention. All right. Now, the descendants of Keturah, the second wife of uh, uh, Abraham, there are six in number, and... They constitute the original core of the tribal confederation to which others, grandsons and great-grandsons later adhered. Now, the name Keturah is uh, related to the Hebrew word Ketoret, which means spices. And the idea is that she comes from a, a group of tribes who dealt with spices. As you know, back then, as it is today in this whole region, spices are very important. So frankincense, myrrh, uh, and other spices are important either for religious purposes, for liturgies, or simply to spice up the food. Right? And that's pre presumably the origin of ke uh, Keturah. As I, um, so the reason why the spices were used in, uh, in, the, um, in the old world were, number one, the requirements of the cult, Number two, manufacture of medicines. And number three, preparation, preservation of food. And the prime source and producer was southern Arabia, especially the Hadramaut region, which is now modern Yemen, and the most fertile part of the Arabian Peninsula. So presumably she may have come from 
essentially Yemen. Now, there is a sort of a discussion over the origin, over when did Abraham uh, essentially take Keturah as a wife. The, if you read uh, Hebrew commentators, they will tell you that there is here a sort of dechronalization that is happening. By this they mean that the, uh, Abraham had taken Keturah much earlier. And, and she's being mentioned here only on account of the genealogies. And that's why she was not mentioned before. And the reason that I advance is because when God came and told Abraham that he is to have a child, that I, uh, Sarah is going to bear him a child, uh, he wondered, shall uh, an old man, he was nearly 100 years old, bring forth a child? So how could then he be taking another wife 40 years later and bring forth six sons? Okay? This, though, presents us with a moral problem. Why, would ha- why did Abraham take a second concubine? And why was she not mentioned before? We know that he could not have taken that concubine before the birth of Ishmael. Because then otherwise the whole story makes no sense. And given that God visited him when he was 99 years old, and that the difference between the span, so 100 years old he had Isaac, and the span of years between Isaac and Ishmael are 13, Abraham had Ishmael when he was 86. So he could not have had Keturah before. He must have had it, her after, and when, and for what purpose. Most of the fathers who comment on this text presume that no, he had her after the death of Sarah, just as the text says. And they explain the uh, bringing forth of six children as a way to as showing, number one, God's blessing upon him, because children are blessing, and number two, to show that um, the blessing that God gave Abraham was to reach all nations. They see it as a fulfillment of that promise that God gave him, by your seed shall all nations be blessed. That's how they see it. And uh, in the ancient time, it was up to the father to decide how to distribute his fortune among his sons. So it is consistent with Abraham's behavior of giving everything to Isaac and giving gifts to his children, whom he would not recognize in the same way as he would Isaac. Now, why would he do that? It seems incongruous. It seems incongruous until we realize that in Abraham's eyes, there's absolutely no doubt that Isaac is the son of the covenant. God was very clear. Take your son, your only beloved son, and offer him as a sacrifice. That event must be very, very vivid in his mind. And because of this reason, uh, and because the fact that God told him that everything will come through Isaac, in accordance with that covenant, he then followed suit and gave everything to Isaac. But to the other sons, he gave them gifts. And this is why he didn't divide what he had amongst them, because he considered most of it to be to be to Isaac through the covenant that God has established with him. All right, that's how you can reconcile both of these um, 
fact. Now, of the six names listed, the first three have not been identified with any degree of confidence, but they most likely refer to peoples or oases along the international trade routes. The last three are well documented. So Zimran, maybe the Arab tribe Zamarani, mentioned by Pliny the Elder, around 23 to 79 AD. Jokshan is otherwise unknown. Medan may be a variant of the place named Badana, situated south of Tima, which is mentioned in the annals of Tiglath Pilser III, and that's about 727 before Christ. Now, the reason I'm mentioning these to you because I want to, I want to underscore a really important principle of interpretation of Scripture. Anybody who comes to you and who tells you, all I need is Scripture, is not really taking Scripture seriously. I just want you to watch a number of times I'm going to mention extra-biblical sources to help us understand or, or uh, highlight some aspects of these names. Without these extra-biblical sources, that is, by us looking only at Scripture, it is almost impossible to know where these names are coming from. Because Scripture by, her, by itself does not explain itself. You know, with Scripture, you don't get a manual that says, okay, here's the interpretation of Scripture. So, anybody comes to you, all you need is the Bible. Well, yeah, all you need is the Bible if you just want to sort of live a uh, superficial Christian life. But if you really want to understand what's going on, you're going to need more than a Bible. Now, let's keep on going. Now, the Midianites are very well documented. Their trade is in Frankenstein's, according to the testimony of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. They're the best known of the entire list on account of the varied history relationship between them and Israel. And their land lay along the territory east of the Gulf of Aqaba in northwestern Arabia. Classical and Arabic sources still knew of a place named Median in this region. Biblical texts show that the Midianites were really a confederation of five tribes and were dispersed over a wide area, which include territory close to the borders of Egypt and the land of Israel. And Genesis chapter 37, verse 25, 2 and 8, and Judges 8, 24, indicate an affiliation with the Ishmaelites. So, even though he, uh, Midian is the son of Keturah, there is a very stro strong affiliation between Ishmael and his line and Keturah, and the line comes from her. Ishbak is certainly the north Syrian tribe of um, Icebook, mentioned in the monolith inscription of Shalmaneser III, about eight, between 858 and 824 BC. And its ruler at the time was Bur Anat, a name that betrays Aramaic influence. The tribe is there, included with the minor Hittite and Aramean kingdoms of northern Syria, southern Asia Minor, and regions of the upper Euphrates. So that's again another source that... It, that that uh, indeed um, testifies to the existence of this tribe. And then Shua, or Suhi, is found in cuneiform text as early as the 18th century. It lay on the right bank of the middle Euphrates, below the mouth of the river Habur. And this is a very important international trade center, which might have been the place of origin of Job's friend, Bildad the Shuhite. In Job chapter 2, verse 11, there is a mention of Bildad the Shuhite. And the two sons of the otherwise unknown Jokshan are well, well attested. So Sheba was situated in the southwestern part of the Arabian Peninsula, and Dedan was a major center of spice track. So from everything I've told you so far, there's a couple of things you want to remember. First, 
what this is showing us is that the most of the, Ish, the Ishmaelites and, and then the Arabs are descendants of Abraham. Second, in order to identify those names, we need to rely on extra-biblical sources. And there are well-attested extra-biblical sources we can depend on. I'll, I'll skip on the Asherim, Letushim, Lenumim. Very little is known about them. And uh, effectively, these terms may signify three main classes of professions amongst the Didanites, peasants, smiths, and semenomads. One potential explanation. But they essentially fit within the same categorization. There is, I'll mention one more thing. When they speak of the land of the east, so in verse um, 6, Yes. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country or to the land of the east. And this is a unique Hebrew phrase, which is Eretz Kedem, which means either the land of Kedem, which would be a specific territorial entity, or the land of the east. Right? So either it's a proper noun, the land of Kedem, or the land towards the east. Where in, in support of the former, there is a very interesting story that I would recommend you take a look at. It is called the Egyptian, it's an Egyptian story of Sinuhe, S-I-N-U-H-E, the story of Sinuhe, and it's a 20th century B.C., it's 2,000 years before Christ. It's very well studied in English literature, it is compared to Shakespeare in many ways. It's a tragedy of Sinuhe, who was essentially living under his master, and something happened that scared him and forced him to flee, and he left and went and lived somewhere else. And where he was living somewhere else, he grew up in stature and became prosperous, but he always yearned to go back to his own land. And finally, before he died, he was given, he was granted this. It's a beautiful poem written sort of 2,000 years before Christ. And in that story, uh, the land of Kedem of is mentioned, which happens to be not too far from Biblos in ancient Phoenicia. And so, you, when you look at the entire region, essentially, you think about what's going on between the Fertile Crescent, and so therefore the whole Babylonian area, Syrian, and the, along the Mediterranean, and a little bit towards Egypt, all these people, essentially, come from brothers, or have brothers. Which suggests to you that the, the strength of the family builds nation. Right? Strong families build nations. And corrupt families destroy nations. It's as simple as that. And um, one way to, to make sure that you're going to be able to strengthen the family is if you allow and make it possible and encourage the woman to stay home and take care of the kids. And if she can't stay home and take care of the kids, you are assured that the family is going to collapse. Family values cannot hold on their own. They need a lot of care protection. And once the woman starts going into the market force and she's more, she, she becomes a career woman and she's in her career and she pursues it, the family falls by the wayside. It's, uh, it's just a known fact. There's nothing we can do about it. But realize this. this if, you t- if you look at the perspective from Abraham's point of view, when all these, when, when these kids were born... And they got dispersed, coming from different mothers. What results in the end is different, uh, for, for, for time being, different tribes able to work together and prosper 
eventually this breaks down. Right? But be, without the strength of the family, no nation can stand. All right, let's move on to the next part, the death and burial of Abraham, verses 7 through 11. So according to the chronology of Genesis, Abraham resided in the land exactly 100 years and lived to see his grandchildren's 15th birthday. He died old and contented. It's a summation of a life that is found with no other personality in biblical literature. Nobody else in scripture has that thing said about them. He died old and contented. Abraham is the only one. And this phrase is not describing his longevity. Because you can die old and decrepit. Right? It's describing essentially his life of grace. That's what's being described here. St. Jerome points out that no one before him was called old. In one of his commentaries, St. Jerome said, I have looked carefully at all those who died before him, and even though there are others who died older than he, like Methuselah and Adam, right, in the 900s and 800s, he died 175 years old. So compared to the men of old, he was junior. But none of them, of none of them, Scripture says, he died old and contended, only of Abraham. And the point that St. Jerome makes is that the reason why Scripture calls him old and the re, uh, is because he was a good old age, full of days, for the whole of his life was day and not night. Again, the point that his life was full of grace, that he lived a, a, a grace-filled life. He was gathered to his kin. And this phrase is peculiar, which is also used of Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, Aaron, and Moses means the following, if you analyze it carefully, being gathered to his kin, because it says he died and he was gathered to his kin. Right? Scripture says that. Well, why does it, does it say he died and he was gathered to his kin? Why both? Well, it is not the same as burial in an ancestral grave, because it is employed of Abraham, Aaron, and Moses, none of whom was buried with, with his forefathers. Abraham was buried away from his forefathers, so is Moses, and so is Aaron. It is also not identical with internment in general because the report of burial follows this phrase. So it's not saying he got, he was interned, put into the soil, right? The difference between the two is especially blatant in the case of Jacob. It says this about Jacob, but if you remember, Jacob died and his remains were then moved out of Egypt 400 years later. Right? They brought back Jacob with them. From, from, uh, from Israel. So therefore he was interred quite a while after being gathered to his kin. So Jacob was gathered to his kin and then 400 years later he was finally interred. So therefore it's not the same thing. It means something different. On account of all of this, it would seem that the existence of this idiom as uh, of the corresponding figure to be uh, to lie down with one's fathers testifies to a belief that despite his mortality and perishability man possesses an immortal element that survives the loss of life death is looked upon as a transition to an afterlife where one is united with one's ancestors this interpretation contradicts the widespread but apparently erroneous view that such a notion is unknown in israel until later times again Right? And that is important to us because if you remember, Jesus had a controversy with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were priests around the temple, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. Right? There's no afterlife for them as far as they're concerned. It ends here. 
And they're the ones who came to him and said, Rabbi, there's this man who had a wife and he died, and the other one, etc., etc. All seven of them died, and they're trying to make fun of him. Well, in heaven, whose wife, whose, whose husband shall be hers? Right? And Jesus answers, you don't understand, and he says, in heaven, you're going to be like angels. And unfortunately, today, uh, a lot of people misinterpret this sentence to think that when we die, we become angels. Because Jesus says you're going to be like angels. And people think, oh, well, that means when I die, you know, I got wings that sprouts and I just become like an angel. Well, no, you don't. And even if you're two months old and you die, you just don't become an angel. Angels are a completely different race all right, of beings that are purely spiritual, they don't have a body. You, no, we don't become angels. What he meant was that in heaven, right? the behavior that we have is more angelic. And what is, the, um, what is the hallmark of angelic behavior? It's the rationality. Right? It's the rationality. Meaning we're going to be able to see God the way He is. We're going to be able to interact with people in a much more profound and intense way that we cannot even conceive here. That's why we don't need this. That's what He meant. But anyhow, the point I'm trying to make is that there was controversy, there still is controversy over whether the ancients believed in the afterlife and this seems to indicate that they indeed did, which is kind of important. Now in verse 9, if you notice how Scripture does it, in verse 9, Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him. Notice, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael is the oldest, but he's put in second, not first. And this is one of the clearest examples we've seen so far, how the order of the firstborns, is now going to be colored by the covenant. The covenant, the firstborn, is no longer the one who has come from the womb the first. It is rather the one who receives the covenantal blessing. We've seen it with Isaac and Ishmael. We're going to see it with Esau and Jacob. Esau is the oldest, yet it's Jacob who's going to be mentioned first, because Jacob is the one through whom the covenant runs. Indeed, through Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, yet it is Joseph that receives, not Joseph, Manasseh, his second son. Joseph, who is the 12th son of Jacob, Manasseh, the second son of Joseph, is the one that receives the blessing of Jacob. And towards the end of uh, Genesis, you will see that. Uh, Joseph presents his two sons to, to Jacob, and Jacob crosses his arms, putting the right on Manasseh and the left on uh, Ephraim. And he and and, Jay, and and Joseph's thinking, poor poor you know poor dad, he's you know can't see anymore. He tries to you know square away the thing, and then Jacob says, no no my son, the younger will prevail, right? And it's this line of firstborns. Remember when I told you from the very beginning of Genesis, Genesis is going to be summarized as the crash of the firstborn. Every time there's a firstborn, he crashes. Every time, pretty much except for Isaac. Who is the only one who kind of stand? Isaac and and actually um, Shem, right? Of course, there is significance. There is a fundamental significance, and that is, on our own, we can't do it. Right? Apart from grace, we can't be saved. You can think of the Old Testament as one lesson that God is trying to teach humanity. Without me, something that Jesus said: "Apart from me, you can do nothing." Right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And imagine how difficult it is for us to believe this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not, 
you can't do great things, not you can't become a surgeon, not you can't have a PhD, go to the moon, do things we would consider difficult and therefore we ask God's help for. Notice, in our life, there is this sort of line in the middle. The things we can do and the things we can do. And we ask God help for the things we can do. But the things we can do, they're ours. And no, Lord, you're wrong. Apart from you, we can do things. Right? The lesson of, of, of all of the Old Testament is, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then the New Testament, with me, you can do everything. Right? You can't comb your hair without Jesus. You can't take a breath if he forgets your name. You can't walk. You, can't, you won't even remember how to walk if he forgets you. That's what he needs. And, and, and we, our prayer isn't at that level. If it was at that level, we'd be happy every day. Nothing would make us sad. Because there would be so many things where we see God's grace in our life. Being here at the church. Having met somebody who smiled at us. Cross the green light when we needed to. Seeing God in the small things is the virtue of piety, the virtue of religion. Not piety, religion. Right? Which is the virtue that gives God what is His due. Right? Seeing God in the smallest things. Very good. The line of Ishmael. Now the line of Ishmael, the interesting thing is that the, very little is said about the line of Ishmael to the fathers. They don't give much attention to the line of Ishmael. And um, the only thing I'll point out to you is really interesting, and then we'll move on because, again, I have, I have copious references about the geography and, uh, and the history, where they came from, and I'll summarize it. They're Arabs. Okay? We'll leave it at that. There's too much detail. But one thing I want to point out to you. In Isaiah 60, verse 6 and 7, it has Midian, Ephah, and Sheba, all Keturah tribes, side by side with Kedar and Nebaioth, all Ishmael's side. So, Isaiah mentions, mentions all five tribes as if they were just all together. Right? No, none of the separation anymore. And likewise, in Jeremiah 25, 23, Dedan and Tema, right? from Keturah and from, uh, from Ishmael. And Ezekiel 27, 21 and following, Kedar and Sheba, the same thing. They're mentioned without, in passing, as if they're, ex they're, they're one people. And the same thing happens when you look at the annals of Tiglath Pileser III, which, uh, which cites Massa, Tima, and Idibayalans, which is Abdil, who are all Ishmaelites, together with Sheba and Ifa, who are descendants of Keturah. What is the point of all of this? The point is that this is a region that is extremely fluid. Right? These sort of... Um, um, association and, um, and unions happen and break all the time. So you need to keep that in mind when you're st studying Scripture because that fluidity is very important for us to realize. It's not that easy to track these tribes across time. All right, let's move on to Isaac. Isaac's father of two nations. Now, the data about Isaac, as you can tell, is exceedingly sparse. Very little is said about Isaac. But I think it's very important. Let's see. There's a certain number of things about Isaac that we don't find anywhere else. Seven things. Here, number seven is just coincidental. Isaac's name, 
uniquely bestowed by God, is not changed. Abraham, Abraham, Jacob, Israel. Isaac was given by God and never changed. His pastoral wanderings are restricted to a narrow range and largely centered around Beersheba. He didn't go different places and get into adventure. He lived more of a monastic life. Unlike Abraham, he does not live at Hebron, Kiryat Arba, but settles there only in his old age. So for the most part, he really lived as a nomad in the wilderness. Here, he alone remains monogamous. No one else. He is the only patriarch to engage in agriculture and the only one never to leave the promised land. Very important. Like in him, that promise was fulfilled. Jacob had to leave it. Abraham had to leave it. Finally, actually let me leave this. References in Amos 7, 9, 16 to the shrines of Isaac and to the house of Isaac as an epitaph, as an epitaph for Isaac seem to indicate that a more extensive account of his life once existed. But I think the life of Isaac is very reminiscent of the life of St. Joseph. It's the hidden life. Very little is said. Notice, Isaac, for the most part, speaks very little, only towards the end when he imparts a blessing, and that's about it. Very few words. But uh, there are are a number of things that are really important about him. When his wife is not able to bear a child, unlike what Sarah and Abraham did, they don't don't, um, go after a concubine. He goes and he prays. He relies on prayers. Truly a Christian model of living between the two. And you'll see there's much to say about Rebecca. Rebecca is a very strong person. A very beautiful person too. Now, interestingly enough, he was 40 when he married Rebecca. And he was 60 when she bore Isaac, when she bore Jacob and Esau. 20 years. Longer than what Abraham waited. He waited 20 years. And in his case, God made no promises. God didn't speak to him directly. None of that. But he waited 20 years. And then, and so did Rebecca, by the way. No complaints. Nothing. Remember, Rebecca and Isaac are under the same covenant as Sarah and Abraham were. Through his seed shall all nations be blessed. It's not happening. So it isn't just the fact that they're not able to have a child. It's the fact also that the covenant isn't yet been fulfilled. And look how faithful they remain all the way through and resort to prayer. That's what he did. 20 years. God made him wait 20 years. So if you're paying for the conversion of somebody you love, don't lose hope. These things are not measured by months. They tend to be measured by years. I keep on praying. Then the children struggle in her womb. Rebecca experiences an unusually difficult pregnancy. Instead of a normal gentle quickening, the fetal movements are spasmodic and she has fears of miscarrying. Not only is the report of the difficult pregnancy unique in biblical literature, but the Hebrew also uses an unusual verb, which literally means they crushed, thrust one another, and which foretokens the future hostile relationship between the children who are about to be born. So she's really concerned. And then she says, if so, why do I exist? The Hebrew, the English is, is not a, an exact translation. The Hebrew is an incomplete sentence, which literally means, if so, why then am I... That's it. 
am I? It's almost like an existential question. Right? She sees it in, 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 in her eyes, she sees it through the eyes of the covenant, and here you have children who are, who, who are, um, uh, who seems to be, um, she has a pregnancy that's really difficult, and she is going to perhaps even miscarry, and she's wondering, okay, why is this happening? How is the covenant going to be fulfilled if I miscarry? But the only thing she says is, if so, why do I exist? Notice, no imprecation, no com- complaints, no, God, why are you doing this to me? No, nothing. And this is from a woman who was a pagan. She did not grow under Abraham's wings. She was in her own country. I mean, there is some profound virtue in Rebecca. And what does she do? Notice, Abraham, uh, Isaac prayed for his wife, and he, Scripture doesn't tell us that he to, went and told her, Honey, I prayed for you, everything's going to be okay. And then she's struggling on her side, and what does she do? She doesn't go and then dump a bucket of complaint over his head. How can you do this to me? I didn't do anything to you. Nothing. Nothing. What does she do? She inquires of the Lord. Observe how both of them are oriented towards the Lord. How they are able to resolve these issues very peacefully. Because they are oriented towards the Lord. They're truly the old covenant image of Mary and Joseph. Obviously Mary and Joseph is perfect. But as far as us, there's a lot we can learn from them. So she inquired from the Lord. And... um, we don't exactly know what happened. And as the commentary says, in this case the narrative is tantalizingly short on details. It says nothing about where she went and who did she talk to. St. Ephraim thinks she actually went and talked to Melchizedek. Right? Which is a very interesting possibility. But it's just a possibility. The fathers aren't, you know, uh, uh, um, aren't um, unanimous on this one. The interesting thing is, according to verse 11, the couple lived in, at Ber Laharoi at this time, the place where Hagar had received the divine announcement concerning the birth and destiny of a son. Could it be that she went and prayed where the angels appeared? Maybe. We don't know. Be it as it may, she inquired of the Lord, and then she received an answer. And the answer is oracular in style, poetic in form, the message being conveyed in four short fa- phrases. She has twins... Each will be a father of a nation. The mumas in her womb result from sibling rivalry for pri- priority of birth. And the physical strength would be decisive. Ultimately, however, the um, authority would be, uh, belong to the loser in uterine struggle, meaning to, to, to Jacob. And effectively, historically, Esau dominated for the longest time over Jacob. And then this was reversed when David uh, uh, fought against Esau and when and won. So then, um, the first one is born, and he's born red, in Hebrew, Admoni. By the way, when they say he was born red, it was not, it's not a criticism, it's actually a compliment. It, it's an, an indication of strength and uh, vitality. So, for instance, David in 1 Samuel 6.12 and 17.42. Uh, likewise, red. So, it, it essentially means a ruddy complexion. 
And uh, that's essentially what is indicated here by the red. But then like a hairy mantle, which is kind of interesting, because it anticipates the crucial role of Esau's hairiness later. If you remember, uh, um, Isaac was tricked by the by feeling the hair, quote-unquote, on the, on the back of his son, thinking it was Esau, but it was actually Jacob, right? So this is anticipating that. And also, the Hebrew hair, Seir, hairy, is also an allusion to the land of Seir, where Esau would live. So there's all these play on words happening here. And then Jacob came after him, holding on his heel, and that's why he was essentially called uh, uh, Jacob. Uh, there's also another interesting thing is that the Hebrew Yaakov stems from a Semitic root to protect. It is abbreviated from a fuller form with a divine name as in Yaakovel, may El protect. Um, and that name has turned up several times in cuneiform forms. So the name Jacob probably might also mean divine protection for the newly born uh, rather than you know, the one who is, uh, who is holding the heel of his brother. Both interpretations are actually noteworthy. And now we get to the last part of the chapter, which is the sale of the birthright. It's very interesting because the fathers have quite a bit to comment on this. And in summary, they saw this passage of the birthright when, when Esau comes and he's hungry and is willing to sell his birthright to his brother for a bowl of lentils. Um, and this passage could be interpreted as a teaching about the contrast between the temporary satisfactions provided by material things as opposed to the permanent honor of virtue. So the way the fathers applied this is, um, if you consider St. Augustine, he'd apply, for instance, Esau being the Jewish people and Jacob being the Catholic people. Right? The Jewish people being essentially left with the material covenant, having all the material riches, whereas the, in Catholicism you're after the life of grace the separation between the two. The passage also provided material for preaching against the desire for wealth. St. Chrysostom preaches against trying to be wealthy. This is what happens to you when you become greedy. And likewise, St. Basil uses this passage to preach against gluttony, which is another one. Right? By the way, about gluttony, most of us never confess gluttony. Right? If I were to ask you, I'm not going to, but if I were to ask you, how many of you do confess gluttony, I'd be surprised if it's one in a hundred. Because most of us don't even understand gluttony. So let me give you a couple of pointers about gluttony. Um, gluttony isn't just about stuffing yourself. Let's clarify this. You ate, you're contented, you're satisfied, you're not hungry anymore. And your sweet aunt brings you a piece of cake. You're not hungry. You eat it. Yeah, you just committed the sin of gluttony. All right? Okay? Another example. Dinner is being prepared. There's a bowl of salad or a plate of hummus sitting there. And you walk back and forth nibbling. Right? You just committed the sin of gluttony. Gluttony is the discipline of eating, which means you sit at the table at the right time, you eat the food that is set before you moderately, and then when you're done, meaning you prayed, you ate, you prayed, you're done, you don't eat. Right? So it's actually a very prevalent sin in our culture that is 
very seldom confessed. So, let's now look at what happens exactly, because we don't really understand why he comes to him and he says, give me of that red stuff to eat. There's something really important going on here that tells us something about Esau. So, let's reread this passage briefly. Once when Jacob was boiling pottage, Esau came in, the, in from the field and he was famished. So, the narrator doesn't, says, doesn't tell us anything, he just says pottage. It's not clarified what's in that pottage. Right? Esau saw, said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red pottage. Now we know it's red. And that's why he got the name Esau. Right? I mean, Edom, he's going to also be called Edom because Edom is red. Esau and Edom is the same thing. Okay? His name is going to be changed from Esau to Edom, which is red. Give me some red pottage. And then, eventually, we know it's actually essentially lentils. Jacob was cooking lentils, right? All right. So, what was on um, Esau's mind when he went through this? So, he was famished. The Hebrew, traditionally rendered faint, actually means to be in dire need of food and drink. He was absolutely famished. Give me to gulp down. In rabbinic Hebrew, it's employed the feeding of the animals. So the way he speaks is almost like it's sort of the animal side of him. Just you can imagine he just want to gulp it down, the way you'd feed an animal, right? No appreciation for real food. And then he says red stuff, which is ha adom ha adom. The, repet- the repetition may indicate deep red. It's really red, red. It's, give me of that red, red stuff. Remember, I told you in Hebrew, if you want to have a superlative, you can't. There isn't red and redder and reddest. It's going to be ha-adom for red, ha-adom, ha-adom for red, red. And ha-adom, ha-adom, ha-adom for really, really, really red. The red is possible, right? From which we get the holy, 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 and holy, 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 right? The Lord is thrice holy because he's the holiest. That's why we have the three times repetition of holy. So, basically saying, give me that red, red stuff that, for me to eat. Now, why? What's, what's his after? The interesting thing is that the word Adom, and the word is really close to Adom, which is, which is I mean, the word Adom is close to the sound of, the, of dam, which in Hebrew means, means blood. So there is a wordplay going on here between Edom and Dam, and it occurs in several texts. So what does he see? He sees a red stuff. And what is he thinking? Blood. Right? So for many of them back then, blood was considered to constitute the life essence and was widely believed to contain magical properties. It's not just back then, it's still today. Right? The sacrifices of animals and all kind of crazy stuff that people do, worship the devil, all centers around blood. Okay? Which is very strange, because from, a spirit, from an angelic point of view, right? blood is no different than cornflakes. It's all made out of matter. It doesn't matter to spirits. It's not like one is better than the other. It's just the same thing. A suggestion that Esau thought the red stuff to be a blood broth. And his instincts were aroused by the sight. He expected his vitality to be renewed by drinking it. What else is he doing by wanting to drink blood? 
Pardon? Yeah, but what else is he doing? Yeah, he wants life, but what else is he doing? What is the covenant with Noah? What was one of the prescriptions of the covenant with Noah? You can eat of the flesh of animals, only you shall not drink the blood. That is a prescription that is given to all people, and it's the covenant of Noah. And it's as true today, and it was back then. You shall not drink the blood. So he's willing to break that covenant. And that's why you see also Jacob being guilty, because he tricks him. He gets his birthright, knowing that what he's feeding him is lentils. But effectively, knowing that he wants to drink this, not because it's lentils, but because it is blood. But he doesn't tell him. He doesn't care. He just doesn't care. He just wants to get the good stuff. So he goes for it. And Jacob gives it to him only after getting him to swear that he gives up his birthright. The birthright, remember what, what the birthright was. You take the pie, the, um, whatever the, the father owned, and you split it into as many parts as there are kids, actually there are boys, really, plus one. So if you had five boys split into six, you have six boys to seven, whatever the case may be. And you give the oldest... The firstborn, two parts. Two parts. Hmm? That's essentially the right of the firstborn from a material standpoint. But within the covenant, it carries another thing. The blessings of the covenant will go through you. By your name shall all descendants be blessed. You are in that lineage now. Esau couldn't care less about any of this. Jacob did, but the way he gets it, Right? It's through trickery. Now you see what happens to him with Laban. When he goes there, he wants to marry Rachel. Guess who gets tricked? Okay? There's no partiality with God. Okay? He gets a little bit of medicine of his own food. That's what he does. So even though God was going to give it to him, he decides, notice, every single time we take things in our own hands, I mean, God told Rebecca, it's through Jacob. So presumably, Rebecca must have told Jacob. Or let's say even she didn't tell him. He coveted the first the birthright, which wasn't his. Instead of praying to God, doing what his dad did, no, he resorts to trickery. I'm going to take care of it. Right? And then from then, you'll see what is going to happen to him. Because of this. Ah, good question. He's a blessed one. See, this is the mercy of God. Now you, st- you, st- you, st- you, st- you kind of take a step back and you look at all of them. None of them is perfect. If you're looking for perfection here, you, you don't fight it in the human beings. This is not a history of hum- humanity. This is a history of the love of God to humanity. And you see, despite the fact that Abraham and, I, and Sarah thought they could do it on their own and went, right? God came and said, all right, that was not my plan A. You blew it. I'm going to go to my plan B for you. Right? And they go down to Egypt. or go. He gets scared and he does this. You blew it again, but I'll pick you up. God, as a father, continuously comes down, picks us up, cleans us up, and says, I'm with you. Trust me. So either we trust ourselves, 
right? Or we're distressed to him. And that's because of original sin, right? We cannot correct these vices, these attitudes in us, without the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the lesson. This is not about how perfect Jacob is. It is about how grace works through the life of Jacob, and therefore how it works through our own lives. Right? Scripture was written for our edification. What does it mean, edification? To be edified means to understand and realize that what was written here is written in my heart. It's written in my life. Scripture continues invisibly today in the lives of all the Christians. Right? If their name is written in the book of heaven, their stories will be told. That's why Scripture cannot be confined only to Scripture. It is essentially the, the story of all of us in Jesus Christ. For if Scripture was only confined to Scripture, then the glory of Jesus Christ that He gained throughout all the saints would not then be told. The glory of Jesus Christ isn't just in Scripture. It's in the lives of all the saints. Should not be told? Of course it should. Hmm? That's why. But now, you step back and you think of yourself as a fallen, sin, uh, uh, sinful man or woman, and you know your own issues and your own problems and, uh, and the evil in your heart and all the things you're struggling with, and now you look at Isaac, and you go, here's a man who didn't have the seven sacraments, he wasn't baptized, he didn't have the life of grace flowing in his heart, he had none of that. And you go, wow. Lord, if through your grace back then, even though your son wasn't yet hadn't come and suffered and died and opened up the gates of heaven for us. You were able to put so much grace in his heart, I can trust and believe that you can do the same with me. That's what is going on here. That's why we study those. This is why I was so keen on studying Genesis. Because all these portraits of these fallen men and women, much like us, and then we step back and we see God's grace and gentleness and love and mercy and compassion and patience with all of them, for years and years and years. And he rewarded them with eternal life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah? Very good. So, uh, we'll finish with a word of prayer, and then we'll take some questions. Scripture usually, the question is, well, uh, Jacob tricked I, um, Esau. How come... How come there's no commentary on that? How come scripture doesn't say, and he tricked him? And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, right? That part of uh, scripture, you will see this kind of uh, moral judgment in the book of Kings, constantly. But here, it hasn't yet formalized itself this way. Instead, you see the outcome through the events themselves. So likewise with Abraham, when Abraham and, I, uh, and, and Sarah decided to have a child through, um, um, not Keturah, what's her, uh, Hagar, you see the consequences of that later, right? So as you reflect on it, you can see, oh, look, he did this and this is what happened. That's how scripture presents it to you. Which is very effective in a sense, because it doesn't try to teach you, it just shows you. The second question, is this the first time that somebody says his birthright? Yes, it is. Absolutely. He had the right to do it. He just let go. The swearing is taking an oath. Therefore, it carries curses. And that's why he wanted him to swear an oath. Because then he was assured that once he swears an oath, an oath he will not recant his word. 
Oh, no, yeah, it did. And there are actually multiple texts. I didn't quote them, but in the Assyrians' uh, literature, in the, um, in the Code of Hammurabi, in different places, there's actually legal uh, text that explains how you can actually go ahead and do that. Yeah. And then the third question uh, was about... Um, pardon? Yes. Would it have lessened his sin? To a certain degree, it would, um, because he was hungry. But you might argue also that he was not a man working on his virtues, right? Sort of, for instance, when people say, well, you know, I didn't know that I'm not supposed to contracept. Yeah, th does that lessen the, the um, penance, or the, uh, the um, not the penance, the um, punishment due to um, having broken God's commandment? Yeah. It does, up to a certain degree. Because you're still responsible to know the teachings of the church. And there, very few of us have really any excuse, because if you were to work at a company, you would know how to behave and what to do, what not to do. You would, you would, you would look into it. In fact, they get you to study it. But when it comes to per, you know, our salvation, we think, no, we don't have to study. Right? So it does up to a certain degree, because it is written in, every, in the heart of every man to behave himself and not to eat like a pig. He pigged out. Good question. If Esau knew Jacob, that Jacob would not sacrifice to animals or idols, what would he make him think that there is blood in the pottage? The thing I didn't mention in the study is, why is it that Jacob is sitting and cooking? Why is it not Rebecca? I mean, why is it not a servant cooking for him? And the reason is because he's probably has gone out of his camp and he's living amongst um, shepherds. So he's not in his house. And he's cooking. But when Esau shows up, he doesn't necessarily know who cooked. All he can see is the food. And his brother sitting next to it. He doesn't have to associate the two. He just takes a look. It's really, really red. There is a lentil from uh, Egypt, which is extremely red. Right? He could have taken one look at it and went, whoa, I want that stuff. Alright? Yes? Did Jacob know he was blessed? He wasn't blessed yet. Did he, was, did he know he was chosen as the second? We don't know that. We don't know if Rebecca told him or not. My suspicion is that she didn't. Right? He wanted the blessing. It was something that, he was, that God put into his heart. But uh, he went about it the wrong way. Yeah. Was he going after the materialistic blessing? I don't think so. It was mostly the spiritual one. But we see that from his own behavior afterwards. Yes. Rebecca? Why would, he punish, why would God punish Rebecca for this? Rebecca didn't deceive anybody. Here, I'm, I'm in this text, you're talking about what happens afterwards? Yeah, when she's... Well, let's get... Okay. Let's wait. Yeah, there's a, whole, there's a whole commentary around that. Very good question, though. Yes. Yes. Well, it's clear that Isaac, as he grew old, favored Esau. Because he liked the game. And this is something I didn't get to around, because, again, I'm trying to keep it within the hour, but... When we grow old, older people, as, I mean, as people get, grow older, they become more selfish. There's this tendency to become more selfish. That's why we tend to say of older people, oh, they're so difficult. Right? Because they have pains and aches, and they've lived a long life, and sometimes it wasn't the happiest life, and it's hard, and they're getting tired. Right? So their temper gets short, and they can't stand up this and that. Right? And that's what's happening to him. Right? That's exactly what's happening to him. And here's Esau who brings him good food. That's it. 
But it doesn't necessarily imply that since he was little, he always preferred Esau. It's when he was older. Right, but but Rebecca, you know, favored Jacob. It's really interesting about that. I know parents sometimes feel very guilty if in their hearts they have uh, they, they prefer one child over another, right? But they sh- they need not feel guilty about this, provided they're treating all their children equitably. The way I describe it to people is that look, for a kid, if it looks like a kiss, if it feels like a hug, and if it looks like a smile, it's a kiss and it's a hug and it's a smile. And even if within you you're doing it without any feelings, it doesn't matter. You did what you had to do. And the kid received what the kid needed. As long as you're doing it, as long as you're going through the motions, doesn't matter how you feel about it, you are loving your child. In fact, you're loving this child more than the other because in this case you're doing it against nature, whereas in the other case you're doing it to please yourself. Right? So no, it's okay. You want exhibit A? Hmm? Exhibit A. Jesus. Jesus asked Peter in John, last chapter, 23, Simon, Simon, do you love me more than these? The assumption is that he loves him. (laughs) Peter is the disciple who loves him more than the other ones. But Jesus loved John more than the other ones, even though Peter... Love Jesus more than John. There you go. God is not a socialist. Other questions? Yes. Two nations. Yes. No, not one Arab. No, no. Two nations. The Edomites do not. The Edomites, Esau, would become Edom. The Edomites are not. They're, they're not necessarily the Arabs. The reason is because effectively they lived on a region that bordered Israel on the east, but it was up in the mountains. And they had access to uh, copper mines and have better precipitation. But at the same time, it was uh, the route to um, be able, the route to the east really went through Israel. So there was always a stuck war between the two nations, between Edom and Israel. Edom wanting to grab Israel to be able to get their stuff going better, and Israel wanted to grab Edom for the goods. Went back and forth, back and forth, until finally David... Uh, the, the, um, defeated them. But in the, in, the, in the third prophecy, in the fourth prophecy of Balaam, Balaam the prophet in the book of Exodus was hired essentially by a king to curse Israel. But every time he opened his mouth, blessings would come forth. Four times. He says, hey, look, I'm, I'm a prophet. I, I can't make that stuff up. I, I say whatever God says. Tells me to say, and in the fourth prophecy, he says precisely, "And Edom shall be dispossessed." When the when the star of Jacob, uh, when the star of Judah would rise, Edom shall be Edom shall be dispossessed. Okay, and here's one interesting tidbit: Herod was not a Jew. Herod was an Edomite. Okay, here he is sitting in his kingdom, and he hears these three guys. Showing up and telling him, oh, we've seen the star. When a star of Judah will rise, Edom shall be dispossessed. That's why he went to a fit of anger. He flew into a fit of anger and said, no one's going to be dispossessing me. That explains why he behaved the way he did. Right? But no, they're not necessarily Jews. So they're not Arabs. If they were Arabs, they'd be just a small part of the Arab world, but not all of them. 
that wasn't your question. Mm, great. Okay. Mm, um, oh, that. I don't. You know, it's a very good question. I think that, as I, as I said, during history, there have been times where one dispossessed the other, and times where the other dispossessed the first. Now, today, there aren't many Edomites left. Right? So, therefore, we can't necessarily say that this prophecy is ongoing for any specific people. Maybe part of Syria might be considered Edomites, because maybe, but I'm not even sure. But be it as it may, the more important fact that we have to keep in mind is the reason why in the Middle East you have this ongoing battle that doesn't seem to stop. As you, by the way, the Middle East isn't the only region. It, yeah, but it's not the only region. All right? We are so focused on the Middle East, we forget. We actually don't know. How many of you have studied the wars of unification of China? China was split into seven, I think, seven kingdoms, maybe more. How many of you studied the part of history, 150 years, to unify China? Have you? I would recommend you do that. The wars of unification of China cost the lives of 150 million people. More than the First and the Second World War put together. In one of the wars, one of the wars, maybe not a war, the battle... One kingdom unleashed an army of 1.5 million soldiers. We can't even fathom those numbers. So we're focused on the Middle East as if it's the only region or as if it's something special, but it's actually not. You go study the history of any area of the world, even here um, among the, uh, the uh, Indian tribes. right? Anywhere you go, you will see that. Why? It's the lack of grace. And that's going to keep on going until grace. Right? Peace be with you. My peace I give you. Well, it's not there, is it now? So I don't necessarily look at it today, especially with the New Covenant, as anything special. I don't give it special value. Right? God has no favorites. It's not like God loves the Palestinians and the Jews as human beings more than he loves the Chinese. Oh, those Chinese, who cares? You know, 150 million die. Well, who cares? We shouldn't even mention it ever. Right? But every time two Palestinians or you know, three Iraqis or two Lebanese die, of course it has to be the... No. It's the lack of grace. Simple as that. There will never be peace until both sides accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Simple as that. And that's where our role is so important in our prayer, in our forgiveness, in our, you know, um, entreating God for peace. That's what we have to do. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.